Thank you so much for that reading. Uh, it is so beautiful to be here worshiping with you all today. Um, a dark, scary passage. Uh, what shall I say before we, we pray and enter this time of sermon? Hello. Hi, I'm Daniel McFarland. Uh, I love this church. My family feels loved by this church. Um, I, I will warn you, I uh, just got done with camping. Not as, as rigorous, though, as, as Michael and the, uh, and the students did, um, but I went water skiing. So if I, if I don't move as much as normal or if I fall down, you, you know what happened. Um, but yeah, Nathan is out. He's on his way to preteen camp, which I, I, I think will be a very loud exciting time. Um, and he asked that I preach uh, this Sunday. He said, let's do some Old Testament. And so you heard a passage from Zechariah 11, and it is God's word. And even though it is dark and scary, it is good. Amen. Amen. So let us pray. And let's enter into this time of sermon. Father, you are good. You know the end from the beginning you, you raise up and topple kingdoms and nations. Uh, you, you know who we are. You, you formed us. You made us. And you gave us your son, your good shepherd. And Jesus, now as, as we come to this time of preaching your word, th this word that is always about you, I ask that you would uh, make me faithful. Uh, let me not adorn uh, the text with unnecessary things, but just let it be received truthfully uh, by this congregation. I pray in the power of your Spirit that if there are any that are dead in their sins, any that do not believe in you as their Lord and Savior, that you would uh, bring new life to them, that you would make them go from death to life so that they would declare that you are Lord. Uh, we love you, Jesus. We, we thank you for your word, how you've been so faithful to your people. Uh, we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so Zechariah 11, a book that we don't often preach from or, or, or think about, um, but it can really be summed up and connected to this, this one question on this, this first slide. Are you better off than your parents? Are you better off than your parents? Don't, don't raise your hand or anything like that. But maybe it's something you've thought about before. Maybe it's something you've thought about for your kids. How about that? Parents, have you ever thought about that for your kids? Are you leaving a legacy of success for your kids? Um, that's something that people in Zechariah's day um, would be asking. Are you better off than your parents? Um, for our own lives, certainly if we think back a generation or two, so maybe not your specific situation, but today, us growing up, even though we've got COVID and scary stuff, if we think back to like World War I time, World War II times, do we have a lot better things going for us? Yeah, we have way more vaccines. We, we were able to crank out a vaccine for COVID in, in just about a year. You know, they had polio, still getting rid of smallpox, um, these dreadful wars. So we know in our own history, it's, it's pretty easy for people to say, better off than my parents. Maybe you had one of those milestones you were the first one in your family to graduate from college or graduate from high school. Um, you know, maybe instead of having to, your, your mom had to work three jobs to, to put food on the table. Maybe you just have one comfortable job. You may even retire one day. It's a question that our culture thinks about a lot. But we, we often don't think about why. Why are we, we just want our kids to be better off than us. We just want to be better off than our parents. But why are we better off? And you may go to the very uh, simple answers, the, probably the most selfish and ignorant one. Well, I'm better off because I work so much harder than my parents. We, kn we know that's not true. Maybe it's your parents set you up. You know, they, they were saving. They put some aside for you so you could go to school. You know, if you zoom out, you say, well, I was born in America. You know, I could have been born someplace with way less opportunities. Maybe that's part of it. Or you benefited from education. But ultimately, we know the answer why we are better off is too complex, too hard to know. Or at least that's what we may think. Well, we see in today's passage, and actually throughout most of Zechariah, the answer is very plain and simple. So let's go to this, this next slide. 
Uh, thank you, Marilyn, for pointing out that Zechariah, about on page 798 in your house Bible, um, 798 in your house Bible, uh, Zechariah, though, tends to this question of generations and how they have changed and grown. Um, Zechariah is, is going on, well, what you need to know, and you could do a whole graduate course on the history leading up to Zechariah, but what do you need to know? Um, Jerusalem had been smashed by Babylon. Nod your head yes if you've heard of Babylon. Yes, okay. Jerusalem had been smashed by Babylon, okay? Uh, temple destroyed, people taken into exile. And then you have, have things like Jeremiah and Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den. And they're all pointing to one day the people are going to be brought out of exile. Well, Zechariah is during that time, during that time. And they're under the, these kings, these Persians, who sent them home. And not only did they send them home, they sent them home with instruction to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So the question is, what will they do there? What will they do? And, uh, you know, things are going well. There is peace. There is some measure of prosperity. There is a little bit of opposition. Um, and they could have answered the question, why are we better off than our parents with this? They could have answered the question, why are we better off than our parents? Because Persia is awesome. Because Cyrus was great to us. But Zechariah is helping them answer the question in a different way. Let me read uh, Zechariah uh, 1, 1 through, uh, let's see, 6 for you. I've only got a couple of the verses up here. This is the beginning of Zechariah. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your who? Fathers. To whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they, being the people of Zechariah's day, repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us, for our ways and our deeds, so has he dealt with us. So Zechariah doesn't say, hey, it's not because you guys are working so hard that you're better off than your parents. It's not because Persia is so great, although Persia did afford them some measure of comfort and stability they hadn't had in generations. It was a God thing. God says, don't be like your fathers. And for once in Israel's history, well, there's, there's numerous times, but not often do they do what, what I had y'all say. They repent. They repent. They say, yes, we do need to change. We do need to repent. That's how the book of Zechariah begins. Don't be like your fathers. God doesn't want them to be like their parents. God wants something new. But also look at their attitude. Did they say, fine, we will repent, but God, we think you were a really big meanie when you judged our parents? No. They said, we, we understand. You warned us. You sent prophets. You sent Isaiah. You sent Jeremiah. We understand you sent prophets. We blew it, and you have done what you intended. They acknowledge that God's plan is good. Do what you will with us. They will Repent. And let me give you this very brief overview of the whole book. I think we've, we've got it up here on this next slide. Um, so uh, Zechariah, as I said, is all during the, the reign uh, of the King Darius of Persia. And so the first six chapters, it labels it as, as the second year, the eighth month. That's what we just heard. And it's a bunch of imagery. Go read the book of Zechariah. I'm sure you've read through it on like your Bible reading plan, but go, go read it in depth. I mean, half the stuff is like a, a prelude to Revelation, like it comes up over and over again in the Bible. But it talks a lot about the new priesthood, how the priesthood is restored. Because remember, if their temple is smashed, do they have priests? They do, but they don't really have a job, so they're, they're getting reinstated. 
Um, that's under the priest Joshua. And then also the Davidic line. Did, did God make any promises to King David? Yes. Yeah. So Zechariah deals with that the, the kingly leaders in the form of Zerubbabel, their governor, um, some of those are being revived and purified. And then Zechariah 7 and 8 is all in the fourth year. And this is more for the people. Because it's one thing if the priesthood is pure and if the king is pure. But what if the people are disobedient? Is that going to work out? No. Everybody has to be on board with, the, with this, this pattern of repentance and purity. And so that's what those uh, two chapters are chiefly dealing with. And then 9 through 14, there's no specific year given. That's one of the sections we're in. Um, and they, they are all sort of held together with these general themes, but we will see how Zechariah 11 uh, sticks out. Um, one, completion of the temple. I mean, that's what got him back. Uh, Darius said, hey, go rebuild it. Go finish what your uh, father started. And Zechariah points over and over that's a spiritual issue. Um, it's not just about masonry. Okay, y'all, y'all helped. You know, y'all, y'all have helped build this church building. You helped rebuild it after there was a fire. Y'all remodeled this. Yes, you needed electricians and plumbers, but it also take a lot of prayer. Yeah, to get it done. It was a spiritual issue, and I'm going super fast. I'm not going to read all these. Just one of them. Um, and then there's messianic prophecies throughout Zechariah, especially uh, the latter half, where it's talking about uh, Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel the king. Purity and repentance. Um, If God is doing this new thing, the people need to purify themselves. Um, But let me read this. This is going to set the tone for most of Zechariah. Most of there are some scary stuff. There's like uh, evil people floating off in pots, literally. Um, So go read it. It's a really interesting book. Um, But let me read Zechariah 10, just in the chapter before this. Y'all, y'all tell me what the tone, what the emotional feel of this is. Zechariah 10, verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God. I will answer them. Verse 7, then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. Is that passage, is that a downer? Is that a, a scary, frightening passage? That, that sounds peaceful. That sounds heavenly. That, that sounds like, man, I want to be there. I want to be there. And honestly, that's, that's where most of Zechariah is. There, there's some end of days stuff and, and judgment stuff, and certainly the people need to repent of sin, but most of it is God is doing new things. He is going to rescue you. He's going to fulfill all these promises. And I'll tell you the end from the beginning, back to that question of why are we better off than our parents? Why are we better off than our parents? It goes deeper than God said, be different. It goes deeper than God told them to repent. It goes to this, even the leaders and blessings they had were from God. It can be taken away by God. The blessing and favor they had with Darius is not just a Darius thing. It is a God thing, and it can be removed. And I believe that chapter 11 points to a day that even God's people would reject the good shepherd and the consequences of that. Let's go to our passage. Um, This is a a verse-by-verse sermon. Marilyn, thank you so much uh, for that reading. These first three verses... Uh, I'll read it again, just these three, and notice how the tone changes. Is it, is it going to sound like chapter 10 that we just read? Uh, 11, 1 through 3. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the what? Shepherds. For their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Now, if, if you're an arborist or you're, you're into botany and plants, there's a lot of cool stuff to look up there with those trees. We're not going to get into that today. But what, what is being described in this passage? Well, first off, is this, is this setting us up for something happy? 
Does this sound happy? No, this passage just goes from worse, like every section I'm going to read to you goes from worse to worse to worse. Eventually people are eating each other's hooves, okay? It is dark. Um, but this is describing an invasion from north to south. Uh, Lebanon uh, in the north, and then we have Bashan, you know, just north of Judah. Uh, and then the Jordan, just, you know, right outside the gates. You could, you could walk there uh, from Jerusalem. That's what's going on. Many commentators, and I, I have reason to think, that this is describing the invasion of Alexander the Great. The Greeks, who you will remember, kick out the Persians. Kick out the Persians. So already at the beginning, Zechariah is helping the people think far into the future. Hey, one day all these happy Darius times are going to end. There will be an invasion. Strife will return. Strife will return. And, and we know during that time, under the Greeks, the temple would eventually be captured and desecrated. The temple they're work, working on right now, the one that they're like, you know, uh, having their, their hands get bloodied and getting up and working shifts to, to get it completed, is going to get desecrated under the Greeks. And then it also has this idea of shepherds. You're going to see this theme of shepherd throughout all of this passage. Now, certainly, if someone is invading your country and burning the countryside, would that be an unfortunate thing for a shepherd? Yes, usually. Um, but we'll see over and over in Scripture, uh, shepherd means more than just people who watch sheep. It points to this idea of leadership, someone who is herding and guiding the people of God, usually in the priestly manner, but also in the, in the kingly manner. And we have good reason to believe in this passage especially, this is pointing towards the priestly, the priestly leaders of the people. And so there is wailing, there is sadness in this passage. Um, but let's learn more about these shepherds on our next slide, verses 4 through 6. 4 through 6. Thus says the Lord my God, become shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord. I have become rich and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king. And they shall crush the land and I will deliver none from their hand. This is a, a dog-eat-dog dog scenario. Uh, it is getting dark. And, and just to, to summarize sort of these verses, this is pointing to a day whenever there is an invasion and society crumbles. Everyone is out for themselves, the king, your neighbor. You, you can't go anybody ask for a cup of sugar because you're just scared to open the door. Who is going to betray me? Who is going to harm me? But what about these shepherds. First off, is Zechariah in this passage told to open his mouth and deliver an oracle? What does it say in verse 4? It says, become shepherds. So God is telling Zechariah, do this, do this. And I very much uh, think that this is in the line of Isaiah 20. This is performative. Zechariah actually does this. Zechariah is a prophet um, he's likely from the priestly class, so this wasn't his day job. In Isaiah 20, what God tells the prophet is, hey, walk around naked so the people understand what will happen with Egypt and Cush whenever they fall to the Assyrians. So th this is another dramatic reenactment. God is saying, I'm going to teach the people something about shepherding and about rulers, and you're going to do it, Zechariah, not with your, your words, although he will talk, but with your actions. Um, so he, he's doing this shepherd thing. It's a performance. And what kind of flock is he told to, to lead? The fluffy flock of the, of the postcards? No, it's the flock doomed to what? Slaughter. Which that sounds dark, but if you're in the ancient world, isn't that sort of every flock? You're not raising them as pets. You're either, you're either shearing them or you're eating them or somebody else is eating them. You know, they may have one or two favorites. So why that very dark term? Because it's describing these other shepherds, the ones that had been watching the sheep, how did they treat them? Meal ticket, something to be used up and, and, and devoured. If you've ever kept animals, there's definitely a way, even if you're going to eat them, 
You know, e- even if you're raising them for food, is there a way to raise them in a way that is caring and compassionate and then a way to just use them up? Yes. Yeah. The- these are guys who are, who are raising these sheep and not thinking of how to best care for them. They're just in it for the money. They're in it for themselves. And uh, let's, let's see. Uh, oh, it says uh, the neighborliness also will be removed. And that's where it has this idea of no pity and no pity. God is just giving the people what they have been giving to each other. Uh, but let's see uh, how the shepherding goes. You know, is Zechariah going to be a good shepherd? Will he be successful? Verses 7 through 9. So I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders, and I took two staves, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another." All right. Now, if this sounds confusing to you, that's because it's not normal. This is not how shepherds normally talk. Does this seem overly dramatic? Yes, he's got these staves. And, but remember, he's doing this in prophetic tradition of saying, I am acting this out so that the people can see something about God and his people. So they can see something. So it says he became a shepherd. You know, he's teaching them something about this. And Zechariah, we said he's a priest. He's not, he's not been doing this a long time. So he doesn't need one shepherd's staff. He needs how many? Two. He needs two staffs because he's got to work really hard. He does give them names. We'll talk more about those later. We'll talk more about the names later. Um, but isn't that, isn't that sort of weird? Anybody have like a, a tool or an implement in your work that you, you name? You know, like this is my, my trusty wrench, Bessie. I don't know. Uh, Zechariah, a little weird. That people would be looking at him strangely, certainly. Um, it does say that, does he do worse or better than the other shepherds? How does he do? It says he destroys them. And some commentators do think that that means that he murdered them. I think there's two reasons that's unlikely. Uh, one, he's from the priestly class. We do know sometimes in the Bible the priests get murderous. We'll talk about that later with Jesus. Um, but generally, that's not their MO. But also later, he's going to ask for payment. And here's a question. Does your workplace have, have office policies? Not your head yes, if they do. Is murdering your coworkers usually against office policy? Yeah. No, what this is pointing out is that Zechariah has done such a better job than these other shepherds, which we can think of why. If Zechariah is showing care and concern for his sheep, may, may the flock respond to that? It, it would seem so. It would seem so. And also note, how long has Zechariah been on the job? This will be important later. How long has he been on the job? One month, one month. Just tuck that away. He hadn't been doing it that long. Um, but he puts these shepherds out of business, or he does so much better than them, they're inconsequential. Um, how do the sheep feel about his shepherding? This is in verse 8. This is talking about the sheep. They detest me. And this is how we certainly know this is being overly dramatic. Sheep are stubborn and, and things like that, but do they have like second-level emotions? Can they detest or abhor? Not usually. They're not filling out work evaluations here. Um, so Zechariah, you know, he says, I quit. And doesn't this sound super dramatic? What is to die? Let it die. Is he saying this for the sheep? Are they processing this? No, he's saying this for the people to hear. And we'll see in a moment that the people are paying attention. This language of what is to die, let it die, I think of Romans 1, uh, Romans 1, especially verse 24, and where it talks about the people uh, not having faith and, and not observing God or being aware of God. And what does God say over and over? Therefore, God gave them up. All right? You don't want a shepherd? You, you want to do it on your own? Go for it. And we, we could imagine a, a flock of sheep on the field. Would they get picked off? Would they have good days without a shepherd? No. It would be disastrous. It would be disastrous for the sheep. And this is sort of, you know, the opposite of chapter 10. Remember chapter 10, God was saying, I'm going to rescue you. You're going to feel so rescued. This is the opposite of that. You don't want a shepherd? No shepherd. Uh, Let's see how further how Zechariah reacts 
to this uh, rejection by the sheep. Uh, Verse 10 through 13. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Remember, I said he's doing all these actions not for the benefit of the sheep. He's doing it for the people. They're seeing. Verse 12. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages. How much? Thirty pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. We'll pause right there. If you know your Bible, that should sort of give you the heebie-jeebies. That's a little on the nose. But before we go into these verses, just do Zechariah, because he's acting out like the Lord, and furthermore, does the Lord feel undervalued in these verses? 30 pieces of silver? Zechariah did a good job shepherding. He feels undervalued. Likewise, God does a good job shepherding his people. How do they treat him? Not just in this passage, but think throughout your Bible. Think to the Gospels. How do they treat God? Undervalued consistently. God's people undervalue his care, his shepherding. But let's look at these verses. Uh, I said I was skipping over the names earlier. He breaks this staff. Like I said, this is, this is sort of he's doing theater for them to see. He, he takes it and breaks it. We don't know if he smashes it over his knee or, you know, hits the ground. Um, but he breaks the staff favor. The word favor means goodness, um, uh, blessedness. And they would specifically think of the good times they've had under Cyrus and Darius and all the Persian kings. You know, and, and this, this talking about all the, the other nations, it was good for them too. You know, that uh, Darius and Cyrus didn't just tell the Israelites, hey, go rebuild your temple. It was sort of everybody gets to go home. Everybody gets to try again. It, it was a really unique uh, way to try to rule an empire in the ancient world. And if it wasn't for the Greeks coming, they, they were doing okay. They were doing okay. They, they just wanted to get paid. They didn't care who you were worshiping, and they would even help you build your temple. But what is God pointing out? The blessedness wasn't just a Darius thing. The people must not get confused. Yes, they had these leaders that were, that were being gracious and generous, but that wasn't all their faults. It was something God had orchestrated. And it means it is something that can be broken. God provided the favor. God can remove the favor. And so this is a benefit for all the nations. Uh, So what does Zechariah do? He says, I'm not being your shepherd anymore. I'm breaking my staff. I'm done. And then he goes up to the the money table and says, pay me. These were shepherds for hire. And obviously we know because it says lordly price that it's indicating that's too low. But what was the actual pay he was supposed to receive? Remember, how long did he work? I told you to tuck that away. One month. One month. Now, in, in general, a common day's wage was one piece of silver. So is 30 pieces of silver under payment? Nah, it's about what he should have expected. What this is pointing to, though, is that Zechariah was so good at his job, at least the way the oracle tells it, he puts three other shepherds out of business. You know, he was that critical to the operation just after one month. And also we know this is an oracle about God. Is God worth minimum wage? Just the usual payment for one day. No, this is pointing out that what Zechariah did, and certainly what God does for his sheep, is much more valuable. And so God tells him to throw it to the potter. We'll talk more about that later as we get to Matthew. Uh, God is saying something about his relationship with the people. God's shepherding is undervalued. Not just in Zechariah's day, but we see it all throughout Scripture, and even in our own lives. It is true, especially in Jesus' day, as this passage relates to him. But we'll get there. Um, Things will go from bad to worse in this next passage. Uh, The people won't have a good shepherd, so God provides a foolish shepherd. Verses 14 through 16. 
Then I broke my second staff, union and only the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. That's brutal. That is dark. Here's what these verses are pointing out. Just like God orchestrated good shepherds, both for Israel themselves, Joshua, their priest, Zerubbabel, their governor that was fulfilling so many Davidic things, but then on the geopolitical sense, Darius, Cyrus, all these kings that are favorable for them, can God orchestrate rotten leaders? Could God's plan have anything to do with priests that reject a good shepherd? I don't know. We'll see. What God is saying is that I gave you this union. That's that staff. Um, again, remember he, he named two of them. And it's talking about Judah and Israel. Uh, now, at this point in Israel's history, they have not been the same country for a long time. Does everybody remember Solomon? Yes, remember Solomon? Pretty much from that point on, they're, they're different nations. And actually, at the point of Zechariah's writing, they're sort of not real countries. They're territories of Persia. Um, but there's still some sense that maybe they could be unified. That, that word union means intertwined, like a rope or a cord being bound together. But if we think of Jesus' day, remember Jesus and the Samaritan woman, or the story of the good Samaritan, what is so alarming about those? The people from Jerusalem don't like the people from Samaria, and vice versa. This is pointing to that society, the, the brotherliness, the, the bonds that tie the society together can be torn apart, can be undone. And, and we think, you know, a society that moves in one as one and is unified, that is something spiritual. Whether it's for a church or a state or a nation, that is a, a spiritual blessing from God. And then we have to talk about these foolish shepherds. You know, he's saying, take up the equipment of a foolish shepherd. And then he does go on to these very, like, terrifying character traits. But I read equipment of a foolish shepherd, and I think, like, what is he bringing? Like a water hose and juggling mallets, um, bowling ball? I don't know. Um, but he, uh, he's told to act like a foolish shepherd. And he just sort of talks about that there's a shepherd that just eats and devours and destroys the sheep. Um, I, I, I will point out later that I think this points to the priesthood in Caiaphas' day, in Jesus' day, where they would reject the good shepherd. But these are ones who aren't caring for anyone. They aren't helping the weak people. They instead are taking advantage of people. And think about leaders in your life, whether within the church or in your workplace. Have you encountered leadership like that? You're like, they are just out for themselves. It is disastrous. It is terrible. But to sum up, Zechariah is pointing out how they're going to answer that question. We are better off than our parents. Why? Because we have great leaders like Darius, Zerubbabel, Joshua? No, Zechariah answers the question, those all can be taken by God. Good leadership, the favor and union you experience now is from God. And then it will close with a curse on the worthless shepherd. Verse 17, Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. Does this curse have a specific shepherd in mind? Some commentators like to point to the Antichrist. Um, I think it's more likely the priesthood in Jesus' day um, because we see this as one who is supposed to to be a good shepherd is supposed to do the job of shepherding, supposed to lead the people, but instead they desert the flock. And so we have these two curses, one on the arm, which is a symbol for strength, and then one on the eye, which is a symbol for purity and holiness. We see that this shepherd, who I would see as the priesthood under Caiaphas, is completely ruined. So to sum up on this next slide, what did Zechariah want them to know or do? What did he want them to know or do? Uh, first off, the cycle is not over. They're experiencing happy days under Darius. Will those happy days end? Just from the tone in chapter 10. Yes. Yes. 
Um, It even is foreshadowing a day where the people will reject a good shepherd. We'll get there shortly. The people have broken covenant with God, and they will uh, feel a loss of favor and union, which, to state positively, that reminds them, why are they having these happy days? It's because it's a blessing from God. God has brought forth their favor and union. I mean, even for our day, we think of nations and peoples, and we see this big political process, these, these events that are so far out of our control. And yes, people make good and bad decisions, but what ultimately unifies a people? It is a spiritual matter. What makes empires crumble and fall? It's not a Darius thing. It is a God thing. And then specifically for the people in Jerusalem, they will see their society unmade. Um, It begins under the Greeks, and and it is quite completed under Rome. Um, uh, Under Rome, their good shepherd will be executed. You know him as Jesus. Zechariah just wanted to meet him one day. Also in AD 70, the Romans capture Jerusalem and destroy the temple. The same bricks that they were working so hard to build up get torn down. It's not put back up. But let's go to the gospel. Let's go to the good news. You've probably been thinking, whoa, we've got to talk about these 30 pieces of silver. This next slide, uh, Matthew 27, which in your pew Bible is 833. 833, which it's true. If you take one of those pew Bibles home, nothing bad happens to you. There's no pew Bible police. Matthew 27. I think I have verse 7 on the screen, but we'll start in verse 3. Need to, you've probably heard this story before. Even if you're not around church, you've heard the story of Judas. But in short, been a disciple of Jesus, supposed to be devoted to him. After the Lord's Supper, he goes out and gets ready to betray Jesus. His accomplices, his accomplices being the priests, the priests. They had agreed to pay Judas 30 pieces of silver, just like our passage today. But I want to read this, not so we can talk about the character of Judas, But listen to Judas' confession to the priests, and listen how the priests respond. Do they have any empathy or any sympathy? 27 verse 3, then when Judas, his betrayer, meaning he betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned, he chained his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the sanctuary, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him, on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Was Jesus' betrayal and death a surprise to God? Were the methods of his capture, torture, and murder a surprise to God? No, they were orchestrated. God can provide a good shepherd, and God can remove a good shepherd. But what did, let's go back to the character of the priest, these ones who were supposed to shepherd the people of Israel. I mean, this was a, if, if you're in pastoral ministry sitting in your office and someone comes into your office and says, I have sinned, that's usually a slam dunk home run. You're like, oh, wow, God's doing stuff here. That's what Judas says here. He says, I have sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. They, they should kick into pastoral mode. They, sh- they should say, oh, let, let, us, let us encourage you to repent. Let, let's, let's comfort you. Let's counsel you. How do these priests sound? Callous. They sound harsh, unloving, uncaring. And what does it lead to? How does it end up for Judas? Death. They are the foolish shepherds. They got rid of the good shepherd. What do they care about Judas? God has always known that his people would undervalue the good shepherd. Do you see in this passage how rotten leadership just chews people 
up. One of the main tragedies of Scripture is that God had provided for this priesthood, given them his word. They had all the tools they needed at their disposal. They, had, they were worshiping the God of Abraham, and they missed the Son of God. And at the same time, they were eating up the sheep, gobbling them up. But we may say, wonderful, I am not a high priest. I am not a shepherd. I mean, if you're in pastoral ministry, maybe you connect with that some. But we don't, we don't have that kind of geopolitical consequence. That's true. But who are you in Zechariah 11? If you're not one of the shepherds wailing, who are you? We're sheep. I could, I could make you say ba, but that would be too silly. We're not a high priest. We're not in the line of David. We are part of the sheep doomed to what? Slaughter. Well, that's pretty dark for us too. It makes me think of this passage in, in Romans 8, which is on page 945 in your pew Bible. Romans 8 and page 945 in your pew Bible. Uh, one of the most positive, encouraging uh, passages in Scripture. Um, but I want to read here uh, verse uh, 35 just so you get some of the flavor of it. Uh, Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is, your, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be what? Slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then it goes on to very encouraging, lofty language. But right in the middle, there's that dark phrase again, sheep to be slaughtered. That's a quotation from Psalm 44, verse 22. Here's what this means, sheep. Here's what this means. We are made to die. We are made to die. Not just in the sense we're mortal, that's, that's common to everybody, but specifically the sheep of Christ's flock under our good shepherd. Paul is using this, this verse and this passage to talk about persecution they face, but even deeper, if our good shepherd Jesus dies in this world, he came back, don't worry, but if he dies, can we expect to face much better? No, short of him returning, we will have the same fate. We are doomed to be slaughtered. We, like our Lord, must face our death. It is a strange and weird thing to, to have someone who says, Jesus is my Lord, who hasn't faced up the reality. They will die. Everything they've built, everything they've known is temporary. And so it is important for us to take stock of what in our life is temporary and what is eternal. We'll see that Zechariah is leading the people this way. But I mean, let's start with an easy one. If someone says, well, I am a sheep, but I, I am living to make millions of dollars. Is that temporary or eternal? Temporary. Millions of dollars. Temporary. Uh, I want my kids to have good memories. Well, maybe. But what if the only way you're providing for those memories is just trips to vacations to go have entertainment? No passing on of the gospel. Even those are temporary. Can little kids forget? Yeah, they can. What if we see someone in need and we say, I need to give them shelter or feed them? Now be careful again how you answer, but if the gospel is not there, will they hunger again? Yes. Will they need shelter again? Yes. It is all temporary. Even if you build the most wonderful church building, look, look at this church building. This is beautiful. Y'all did a great job remodeling this. Can it be taken an instant? It almost was. We had a fire. Zechariah's people would grow to know this as the Greeks came in and desecrated their temple. And then shortly after Jesus, after the temple was smashed, that was built to last way longer than this church building. Does it still stand? No. Temporary, not eternal. We see so much of our life is doomed to end and fail. What is the only eternal thing we can do, flock doomed to slaughter? What is the only eternal thing we do? Everything we do will be torn down. That is what Zechariah is helping them understand. But what is our eternal thing? We face death all day long. 
The only thing we can engage in is declaring who Christ is and sharing Him. That hungry or thirsty person, if you share living bread and living water, will they have something eternal? Yes. You may even grow and and disciple them and have many years with them and be greeted as their brother or sister. That's what Zechariah is moving the people to long for, something eternal, to look past their present happy circumstances, which that's true. That's so hard for us. If we're happy and healthy and well-fed, are we thinking about how fleeting our life is? Usually not. It's whenever we're down. It's whenever we're hurting. So that's why Zechariah's language of a flock doomed to slaughter is so helpful. Let's go on to our final slide. Let's not miss this. Let's not miss this. Believer, praise God for being one of Jesus' sheep. Praise God for that. One in what it took the good shepherd doing, coming and being rejected, being tortured, executed, his blood spilt as a righteous man for your sake. That is glorious. We will worship him forever for that. But also praise God for being his sheep for the circumstances in your life. Now you can nod your head this. How many of you were were stubborn about the gospel? You had to be told the gospel more than once. Yeah? I did. Think about how generous and gracious Christ was in your life. You came to all those church meetings. You had that friend that kept pestering you. That was Jesus being a good shepherd. He orchestrated that and your life. That is divinely appointed and glorious. Don't neglect to praise God for that. But also today, and this is very apt as, as our, uh, our senior pastor, Nathan, has been out, praise God for the shepherds in your life. So let's just think about just this church, the people that it takes to make Sunday morning happen. Certainly the elders, uh, the people that are leading your life groups, uh, leading your building blocks, the people that are tending for you spiritually, they are provided for you from God. Praise God for them. Pray for them. I would challenge you, believer, if you make a habit of coming to Sunday worship without praying for your leadership, start doing that you will see how blessed and encouraged you are and worship. Praise God for the shepherds in your life. And then there is something to be said because this is sort of a geopolitical passage. Remember, we saw in this passage, is, is harmony and, and lack of war in our life, is, is that just because we have smart military commanders? No, it's a God thing. So it, it sounds cliche, but it is very important and good and right for us to pray for the leaders in our state and our city and our nation because we benefit from the, the peace and harmony that they help foster. It is a good thing. But then unbelievers, unbelievers, first off, acknowledge that you've been given great things by God. I know today's imagery has been hard. You're like, he was, there were people's hooves being ripped off. This, that was a lot of weird stuff. But let's break it down. You've been given great things. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, with him there, whom there is no chains or shifting shadow. You've been given good things in your life. Even if you don't feel like your life's in a good spot right now. Maybe COVID really has you down. You, you've lost your job. You've had people sick. But historically, as I pointed out before, are we in a pretty good spot? You know, most of us aren't in danger of going out and and starving after this. We're not in danger of someone coming and ransacking our village. We've been given so many good things. Think of your country. We're not perfect, but most of us are some of the most wealthy people in history. And what about your individual life, non-believer? Have you been given a family that in some measure nurtured you and cared for you? Have you been given health? And if not health, recovery, medical personnel. But here's the greatest thing that God has orchestrated for you. You have heard the gospel. Even if it's just today. You've been in this church. We have sung the gospel. Christ 
alone. You've had it preached and have it told to you again. Jesus dies for sinners. He is buried for three days, but God raises him from the dead. And so that if you repent and believe, you can be one of his sheep. He calls you even today. Well, what things has Christ orchestrated in your life to hear today's message? Be grateful for that. You have heard about this Jesus, this good shepherd. But how did the people in Zechariah's day value a good shepherd? How much? 30 pieces of silver. Just minimum wage. How much do the people in Jesus' day value a good shepherd? Likewise, 30 pieces of silver. They also wanted to murder him, but that's... They did not value Jesus. So that, unbeliever, is the question for today. How much will you value Jesus, the good shepherd? It is the most important question in your life. Who is Jesus? Don't make the mistake of saying, well, okay, I heard some stuff. They said some things about sheep. I'll figure that out later. You know, maybe after I'm married or, or settled down. No, today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of belief. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. Whatever your excuse is, it's not worthwhile. So repent and believe today. Amen. And now I'll pray for us, and then we'll have a, a time of, of closing. And I think Michael will come up and have some announcements. Um, but let's pray, church. Let's pray, flock. Jesus, you are good. You are our good shepherd. You were scorned and undervalued by the people in your day. You're, you're scorned and undervalued in our lives. We do not always value you as we should. Uh, I pray that uh, you would remind us of how good you are and how blessed we are by you. That the simple blessings in our lives and the profound come from you. I ask that as we go out, we would be reminded that we have this eternal work. We're not just here building bricks and stones, but we are here uh, professing and proclaiming your kingdom, Jesus. I ask that you would let us be fruitful and give us opportunity to share about who you are, our good shepherd. We pray this in your name. Amen.